Well, uh, most of us love the Christmas season for a wide variety of reasons, don't we? Maybe you enjoy celebrating uh, the long-standing family holiday traditions of lighting the uh, tree, decorating the, the house and the mantle, singing your favorite Christmas carols, or uh, dialing in a, an old Christmas classic movie like It's a Wonderful Life. Perhaps you enjoy gathering together with friends, coworkers, or families to celebrate a party. Uh, maybe you enjoy uh, getting a Christmas bonus and having a couple days off work. But I would suggest that probably on everybody's top ten list of the reasons I like Christmas is the giving and receiving of gifts. There's something special in the words of C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author, a Turkish delight kind of special when we give a gift that blesses someone. Uh, and then there's a special kind of pleasure, too, in receiving a gift, especially uh, a nice gift if it was unexpected. I can still remember coming into the family room when I was a, um, an awkward 12-year-old eighth grader on Christmas morning to find a big, huge box under the tree with my name on it. And I tore open the, the gift wrapping that, that morning to discover, to my utter delight, an HO scale slot electric racetrack. And that gift brought hundreds of hours of joy to a young boy and his neighbors, the Dooley brothers, back when we uh, painted those little cars and put decals on and had racing slicks, you know, in the days long before Xbox and Wii. That was real fun. And no doubt you can remember the giving and receiving of a special gift as well. Well, this morning we're launching a three-week Advent series of messages that we're titling The Greatest Christmas Gifts. Now, Advent simply means coming or arrival. Uh, it's been celebrated in the church for thousands of years, a thousand, over a thousand years now. And in the church, it does specifically refer to the four Sundays before Christmas as we prepare for the arrival of the Messiah or the celebration of the arrival of the Messiah. And the church is celebrated through worship and through drama, through singing, through scripture reading, through the reciting of the creeds, through acts of charity, uh, through sharing of communion, and even silence together. Advent celebrations of all kinds have enabled sincere Christ followers to keep their perspective on the right things in the right way in what can be an otherwise distracting kind of time. And for the next three weeks, we're going to celebrate the, the greatest Christmas gifts, the gifts of real hope, next week real joy, the following week real love, and then we'll conclude at our 4 p.m. candlelight service on Christmas Eve as we look at real life together. And we'll sing each week both the traditional carols and contemporary worship choruses. We'll read the scripture We'll worship through the giving of our offerings to God. We'll hear, hopefully, a practical and encouraging message from the Bible. And uh, then we'll have an opportunity at the conclusion of those services to receive prayer, to change your life. So let's uh, just uh, bow our heads and hearts and welcome the Lord's presence as we look to his word today. Lord, we're just humbled and grateful for who you are and all you've done. We, we honor you and we, we pray the prayer you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. We bless your name today, Lord, for the fullness of life that comes through Jesus, his death and resurrection. We bless your name for the gift of the Holy Spirit 
your deposit in our lives that everything you've promised is eventually going to happen. We bless your name for life and health and soundness of mind. We bless your name for your favor. And we bless your name for the security you give us against an uncertain future because of Jesus. And now we welcome you here among us. We pray that you would inspire us to worship. You would educate us and inform us in your life, your ways. You would equip us for ministry to a love-starved world. In Jesus' name, amen. When our four children were very young, there was no such thing as VeggieTales or SpongeBob SquarePants. The hot video character was Salty, the singing songbook. Our kids watched those videos so many times that we, as a family, collectively had every song and every word of dialogue memorized. You know, in a similar manner, many of us have heard the Christmas story so many times that we're uh, like anesthetized. We have the script memorized. And because of this familiarity, we have a tendency to kind of yawn our way through the readings of the first and second chapters of the Gospel of Luke that contains the Christmas story. And so every year I have to practice the discipline of saying, Lord, give me fresh eyes to see the story new. Give me fresh ears so that I can hear your voice anew as I read the story again for the first time. And this year, as I've read the Advent story, I've been amazed at how often God speaks words of real hope and encouragement, especially through prophecy. Not just to the world in general, but to his children in particular. Now, actually, the Christmas story begins way back in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, the Bible tells us that our early spiritual foreparents, Adam and Eve, yielded to an original temptation. They ate a forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, and their act of sin and betrayal changed everything in God's good creation. Mankind had been created innocent, and they lived in vital relationship with the living God. But at that moment of disobedience, Adam and Eve were separated from God in his life, and they came under his judgment. The story in Genesis 3 shows us that God pronounced a curse on the woman and the man, the earth itself, and Satan, who had tempted Adam and Eve in the form of the snake. And at that point in the story, it could have all seemed so hopeless. But in that very same breath, God encouraged Adam and Eve as he prophesied to the snake. And he said, and I quote from Genesis 3, From now on, you and the woman will be enemies, and your offspring and her offspring will be enemies. He, the woman's offspring, will crush your, the serpent's head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is somewhat figurative language, and it's really not until 4,000 years later at the crucifixion, that we can more fully understand what God was saying in those figurative words. But God was basically encouraging his children with a word of promise. And the word of promise was, it's not always going to stay this way. The future has hope. At that very moment, then, God took the initiative 
to restore things between himself and his good creation. And the rest of the Bible is, frankly, a record of the unfolding of his plan to bring real hope to all mankind. Over and over through history, God would speak a word of encouragement to his children. Uh, and he would remind them that the future has hope because my kingdom is going to come. Now, in the early years, the language of that promise was rather vague and fuzzy. For instance, he told Abraham, the father of all faith, in Genesis th- uh, chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, I can imagine that Abraham and the other patriarchs had a, a difficult time fully comprehending what in the world God meant through that. But God was encouraging them that there was coming a day in the future history that all people would be blessed because of Abraham's offspring. And then as the centuries moved forward, real hope continued to come at various times in various means. For instance, that the institution of the Passover in Exodus 12, as the Hebrew nation was delivered from slavery uh, from from, uh, Egypt, God was pointing to the future freedom that would come from slavery to sin. Through the Psalms of David, who was unquestionably the central figure of the entire Old Testament, his hope was stirred, our hope is stirred as as we read his songs and his poems. They, They give us glimpses of the coming Son of God. For instance, Psalm 110, the role of king and priest that the Messiah would have. Psalm 22, his crucifixion. Psalm 16, his resurrection. And Psalm 72, his glorious and eternal reign. But then years, decades, and centuries passed. Israel was now ravaged by civil war, became a divided kingdom, and eventually suffered invasion and defeat at the hands of the Babylonians, who destroyed the capital city of Jerusalem, and they carried away the Judeans into exile in 597 B.C. It was in those dark and despairing days that God would occasionally send a prophet, someone like Daniel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, or Hosea, or Micah, or Zechariah, to, to speak a word of encouragement by urging his people to turn from selfishness and idolatry and to stir hope that the kingdom would come, the day of the Lord would come. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophets pointed to a day when things would not stay the way they are, that things would change. Uh, God himself, the prophet said, is going to personally intervene in the history of the world to set everything right. And that's, that's what uh, kept God's people alive. For, for example, Isaiah prophesied in the ninth chapter of his letter, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with perfect fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Jeremiah promised this, the 23rd chapter, the the 5th verse. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He'll be a king who rules with wisdom, and he'll do what is just and right throughout the land. So year after year, 
decade after decade, God's people clung to these words of hope as they looked forward to the day when God himself would intervene in human history and set the world to right. Well, as the New Testament opened, God's people were now living under the oppressive rule of the pagan Romans. They were heavily compromised with local politicians, and they were sliding deeper and deeper into debt and despair through heavy taxation. But in the midst of those despairing circumstances, there still remained a faithful remnant who were holding unswervingly to God's promises. His covenant that he'd made to Abraham, the promises of the prophets, they were, they were holding on to the promise of a king in the, in the Davidic line. And they were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. They wanted God's kingdom to come all right, and they wanted it right now. Well, God took then the step to inaugurate his kingdom. God himself pitched his tent among men as he stepped into this broken, messed up world in an offbeat and unprecedented manner through the birth of a baby. God inaugurated the restoration. He wanted to step in and make things better, and bring hope. That things wouldn't always stay the way they are. It's as if in Jesus' birth story, the floodgates of hope opened up once again. God had been silent for 400 years, and now here he was speaking and acting again. For instance, Gabriel, the mighty angel messenger of the Lord, appeared to Zechariah, the priest, while he was serving in the temple, to say that he and his wife, Elizabeth, who were now quite old and quite childless, that they'd have a son whose name would be John, and John would pave the way for the Messiah or the Savior. The angel said in in Luke's gospel, you'll have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before his birth, and he'll turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He'll prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And then the same angel Gabriel appeared to a virgin named Mary, engaged to a man named Joseph, and he encouraged her that she was a favored woman with these words in Luke 1. Don't be frightened, Mary, for God has decided to bless you. You will become pregnant and have a son, and you're to name him Jesus, meaning God saves. He'll be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, upon visiting her aunt Elizabeth, who was by now six months pregnant with John, Mary was overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit and began to sing a prophetic song laced with hope. God embraced his chosen child, Mary sang. He remembered and piled on the mercies, piled them high. It's exactly what he promised, beginning with Abraham right up to now. Luke 1 from Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation. And then at John's birth, Zechariah prophesied a message of hope with these words. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised his holy prophets. He'd been merciful to our ancestors. We've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear. And you, my little son, 
You will be called the prophet of the Most High because you'll prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell His people how to find salvation for, for, through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us and guide us to the path of peace. Two more. There was a man named Simeon. He was a righteous man living in Jerusalem. He used to hang around the church called the temple. He was eagerly awaiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. And when Joseph and Mary brought the baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, like any good pair of Jewish parents would have done, Simeon took the baby in his arms, was filled with hope as the Holy Spirit fell upon him, and he prophesied out these incredible words of real hope and encouragement. Lord, now I can die in peace. As you've promised me, I've seen the Savior that you have given to all people. He's a light to reveal God to the nations, and he's the glory of your people. And then lastly, there was an elderly woman named Anna. She prayed and prophesied, a single woman in the temple serving the Lord. And when she saw Simeon praying for the baby, the Bible tells us in Luke 2 that, that she began praising God for the arrival of the promised king. Now, did you hear all the hope and all of those exclamations? I mean, God's message was so encouraging that things aren't always going to stay the way they are. Several years ago, Hardee's introduced us to their Monster Thick Burger. It featured two one-third pound charbroiled Angus patties. It was topped with no less than four strips of crispy bacon, piled with four uh, slices of American cheese and some mayonnaise, all on a a toasted uh, sesame seed bun. The result was an updated version of their classic that required two hands, a firm grip, and a really hearty appetite. But what the ads didn't tell you is that the Monster Thick Burger contained 1,500 calories and 108 grams of fat. (laughs) Friends, that's a heart attack camouflaged in a bun. In fact, this sandwich is so saturated with fat, you couldn't stuff any more fat into a burger. Friends, you can't get any more hope stuffed into a story than you can the Christmas story. You can't get any more in there. It's everywhere. Those texts read, God has visited and redeemed His people. He's a mighty Savior who rescues us from our enemies in glorious power and awesome strength. He brings joy and gladness and peace and mercy piled high as His kingdom that will never end comes. That is real hope. That's the message of the Advent. Now, that baby Jesus, born in a hillside animal shelter, grew up. And in about 30 years, he launched his itinerant ministry with a hope-filled announcement. You can look at this uh, in your Bible and Mark the first chapter and Luke the, the fourth chapter. The words will be on the screen. Jesus said, The time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed or enabled me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
So it's as if Jesus were saying, because God's kingdom is here, things don't always have to stay the same. The landscape of the world is different now. And then in his words and in his works and in his way of life, Jesus offered hope as he welcomed men and women and children back into vital relationship with himself as he forgave sins and stupidity and bad choices, as he healed the sick, as he met physical needs, and as he restored those who'd been marginalized and broken. He welcomed them back into relationship with the living God. Over and over and over, Jesus employed the tell-and-show model that we learned in kindergarten. Show and tell, you remember that? Okay. Jesus employed the same thing. He, he, he would tell people and then he would demonstrate that God's kingdom, his rule and his reign, have actually broken in to this present evil age. That's what the words and the works and the way of life were all about. He said that it, it had come to all people everywhere. Not that God was making a list and checking it twice to find out who'd been naughty and nice. It came to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, sinner and saint alike. The kingdom had come. Jesus was revealing God's will for everyone, that his intention was to restore broken, fallen, separated man to the wholeness and shalom of God's order. I love that word. Shalom is a, is a really rich Old Testament word that, that talks of, of wholeness and fullness and, and completeness and well-being. The sense is to live, uh, free and out from underneath the devil's rule and power and authority and suffocating grip. God's calling us to his shalom. Here's how Jesus described in his very own words his desire to make things better and bring real hope. It's found in John's Gospel, the third chapter. I'm reading from Eugene Peterson's message translation. This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending His Son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. The thief's purpose, it's to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So the real hope of Advent is that because God's kingdom came in Jesus things don't have to stay the way they are. He came to give us a whole and lasting life, a rich and satisfying life. Not the American dream life that we might be apt to think, but the real kingdom life centered on God. It's as if in the coming of the kingdom with Jesus' birth, the power and blessing of the future that we'll inherit in full someday have broken into the present, and we can now tap into that power and blessing. Are you feeling lost and disconnected from God, separated from Him, maybe because of some sin or selfishness or some other bondage or addiction or some other form of guilt? Are you hungry to know and to actually hear from God, although perhaps feeling somewhat paralyzed at the moment? Real hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. 
Our relationships with other people, perhaps broken through betrayal or hurt or disappointment or divorce or bitterness or unforgiveness, jealousy or envy, Real Hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. Are you unemployed, underemployed? Are you frustrated? You don't like the job you've got? Hoping for another one? Feel like maybe you've been a failure in life? Real Hope says it doesn't have to stay the way they are. Are you depressed or wounded because of some other form of injustice or pain or loss or wrong that you've suffered? Real Hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. Maybe you're stressed out because of the pressures of life, raising the kids right, and and managing your resources and living within your means. Real Hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. Maybe you're a victim of racism or sexism or ageism or some other form of of abuse or neglect. The Bible says, Real Hope says, you don't have to stay the way they are. Things don't have to stay the way they are. Maybe you wrestle with insecurity or fear, or a sense of isolation, or loneliness, that no one understands you, people just don't get you. Well, real hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. Are you struggling with a health issue? Real hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. Are you depressed or disappointed because maybe you've lost a loved one? You're grieving the breakup of a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Maybe you, you just say, well, Ben, life hasn't turned out the way I'd hoped. Well, real hope says things don't have to stay the way they are. Jesus came to bring real hope. Now, we all know that when God's kingdom came to the earth, it didn't immediately dispel all the presence of the evil in this this current world. The Apostle John, in fact, tells us in 1 John chapter 5, 19, that this world is under the power and control of the evil one. And in this period of time that the Bible refers to as the last days, the days in which we are living, we are actually experiencing the overlapping of these two ages, the age to come and this present evil age. And it's an absolutely unique time in all of human history. There are two kingdoms that coexist in the earth today, God's kingdom and the devil's kingdom. And why God has allowed the enemy a limited sphere of authority until the day when it's finally consummated, we do not understand. But we live in the last days in the presence of these two kingdoms. The kingdom has come in the arrival of Jesus at the first advent, but it didn't come all the way. And so what that means is that eternal life through forgiveness of sin is here, but it's not here all the way. Not everyone is going to be saved. We know that healing and deliverance and peace and justice are are here, but they're not all the way here like they will be someday when Jesus comes again. So the kingdom is already here, but it's not yet all the way here. That's real life. And what this means, friends, is that clear-cut answers are are sometimes difficult. Uh, Ambiguity clouds our understanding. We can't fully explain why why we must suffer at the hands of a uh, a ruthless dictator in in another country or an unjust governmental structure. We we feel numb and perplexed when we see images on on the evening news of, of terrorists and guns and bombs and recessions and wars all around the globe. We, we don't get it. We, we are uh, filled with anxiety when someone or something that we love is taken away from us and we, we lose what we thought we had. 
Well, here's the deal. Jesus offers no panaceas, no easy answers, nor does he take all the pain away. But what Jesus does offer is the unflinching realism that hope is here because his kingdom has come and he wants to break into our lives right now. That's the pledge of the life, the person, and the work of Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. God is moving all around the world. And I think it's interesting that Jesus instructs us as his followers to pray what is now commonly known as the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Some call it the Our Father. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So at the very heart of prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, is the expression of a desire to see things change. Real hope says things don't always have to stay the way they are. That's at the heart of the prayer that Jesus instructed us to follow. The Lord's Prayer is petitioning God as our Father to break into our everyday getting up, going to work in school and family life with the power and presence of the future right now. That's the prayer He encouraged us to pray every day. All around us, friends, God's Spirit is moving, sometimes in large and dramatic and supernatural ways, and at other times in small and almost imperceptible ways, and everything else in between. God's Spirit is moving as He extends His kingdom to all people everywhere, because God loves them all. He is forgiving. He is healing. He's restoring. He's setting people free. He's bringing the shalom that we'll experience in total on the day when Jesus returns to the earth. We're experiencing now bits and pieces of that shalom. And it's a desire for that to grow. A little leaven worked into the dough is how Jesus described uh, the kingdom. It's like a little bit of yeast that a woman works into the whole dough. It's going to eventually grow and fill the whole life. There'll become a day when God's kingdom will come in full and our life will be complete. And the neat thing is that God invites us as his church to partner with him in extending the shalom, the well-being of his kingdom, the good news, otherwise called the gospel to everybody where we work, live, play, and go to school, shop and eat and do our, do our grocery uh, shopping. He says, go out and be, be my partner in, in sharing the shalom, the good news, the gospel, that we belong to God, that we matter to God, and that we can trust God to lead us, to guide us, protect us, and provide us as we await the consummation of what he inaugurated in the original Advent. And friends, because God's kingdom has come today, we can embrace and keep embracing that sense of real hope because things don't have to stay the way they are. Lord, we're just humbled and grateful for your coming. You're willing to... Pitch your tent among men by becoming a baby that was born in a hillside shelter filled with animal manure. It blows our mind. That's not the way kings come, but it's the way you did. And you wanted to show us then as you grew up in your your way of life, Lord, and with your words and your deeds that your heart is for us to have a rich and satisfying life. Not the American dream, but, but a real life that's centered in you. Lord, we just welcome your movement in our life in all the ways that you know we so desperately need. Touch every one of us, Lord, in the ways that we need your hope. We need the embers of of hope to be fanned into flame again today. 
And now, Lord, as we give you our heart and, and mind and song, and as we lift our, our, our resources to you in this offering, we, we ask that you would just take these gifts for what they are. Tokens, small, but tokens that say, we love you. Bless these, Lord, as we offer them up to you in your name.